Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, February 22nd. I'm your host, Jason Moser. And on this week's financial show, we'll dig into Berkshire Hathaway's latest buys and sells. We'll take a closer look at Paycom's most recent quarter. We've got an update on Wells Fargo, along with a listener question we'll tackle, and we'll wrap it up with ones to watch. Joining me this week, it's Certified Fly Podcaster. That's right, CFP, Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything going? Oh, just great. It's raining here a little bit, but other than that, it's a pretty nice little little Monday. How about you? Back from the stables, I see. I haven't gotten out to the stables yet today. Trust me, that's coming <laughs> later this afternoon. Got to get away every day, man. The horses make a mess. Um, uh, no, it, it's it's very much the same up here. Rainy, uh, starting to melt some of the snow in the ice. Still got some of that stuff on the ground, but I'm hoping maybe we're through the worst of winter up here and we can start looking forward to some spring-like behavior. Got to get that uh, pre-emergent down on the lawn. Uh, Got to make sure that thing comes on nice and green this spring. Yeah, I haven't even thought about <laughs> stuff like that yet. <laughs> well, uh, Matt, let's let's open this week's show with something I think a lot of people have been talking about here over the past several days. Something we always like to tackle when, when this filing comes up. Berkshire Hathaway um, has been buying and selling and their recent 13F filing, which just came out, gave us a, a, a nice glimpse into everything that they have been buying and selling. And, and you recently published an article on Fool.com, by the way, called Here Are All 10 Stocks Warren Buffett Has Been Buying. So we'll make sure to tweet that out on the industry focus feed later. But for now, Matt, let's tackle what's been going on in Berkshire Hathaway's portfolio. And let's start with the newcomers. And there are four new stocks in Berkshire's portfolio. And correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like one of these new stocks he owned before, too. It's like a, it's, he reestablished a position in, I think, one of these companies, didn't he? Yeah, so there were four. Um, there were um, a company called EW Scripts, which he bought technically bought in January, but we already knew about that one. That's the, the, newspaper, the publishing company. Uh, there's Martian McLennan, which is a financial services firm. Th- both of those are relatively small investments by Berkshire standards. When I say small, I mean only about half a billion dollars each. <laughs> yeah. um, the two big ones by far were Verizon and Chevron. And I, I know I know Buffett used to own Verizon to some extent, I think. Okay. Cause I, so I was thinking Chevron. Was Chevron. For some reason, I felt like he maybe held an interest in Chevron before and then closed it out at some point. Um, I think you're right. I'll have to double check yeah. on the the particulars of that. But those were big investments. I mean, yeah. for for an, they're not big compared to Berkshire, say Apple or Bank of America investment. But, but those were built up over time. For the Verizon one in particular was about you know, about almost nine billion dollars, and that's a lot for Buffett to spend on one stock at a, to establish a position all at once. And a lot of investors were not happy to see that those were the two big buys between you know $13 billion between Verizon and Chevron. Because a lot of people think of those as boring stocks, like, oh, Buffett's lost his touch, things like that. Um, a couple things I would say to that. First of all, I would much rather $9 billion of Berkshire Hathaway's capital be in Verizon than in cash. 
it's a much more productive use of the money. Verizon pays a very nice dividend. I want to say in the five percent ballpark right yeah, now. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Four point four percent yield. Yeah. I mean, that's you can't discount that. Right. So it, what, what was it? Sitting in Treasury securities earning like 0.1%? <laughs> yeah. So this is definitely a better use of capital. Sure. Um, Verizon's not going to double your money overnight, but that's not what Buffett's trying to do. He wants steady cash flow. Um, if you remember when we had Kevin O'Leary on a few weeks ago, he emphasized cash flow and he Absolutely. specifically talked about Buffett and Munger. <laughs> um, you want cash flow. Buffett wants dividends to be able to reinvest. 4.4% yield on a $9 billion investment is quite a bit of money um, to, to eventually reinvest. And remember, there's the 5G rollout coming. There's a lot of reasons why Verizon's gl- growth should be slow and steady going forward. And that's yeah. what Buffett wants. Yeah. And I think to your point there, I'm glad you mentioned the 5G rollout because, I mean, that is something I'm sure many of our listeners know. I, one of the services I run here at work is is focused on that 5G rollout and, and all of the different um, companies and markets that will benefit from that. And, and I, I will say, I mean, it is one thing in looking at the recent bidding for all of that spectrum for these operators to roll out that 5G capability. I mean, the demand for that spectrum was it far exceeded what what was forecast. I mean, I want to say the estimates were somewhere in the neighborhood between twenty and thirty billion dollars bid uh, for the spectrum. It turned out to be closer to ninety billion, and, and certainly Verizon is is one of the companies in there um, bidding for that spectrum because I mean it's one of the one of the largest wireless providers out there. Yeah, and I mean, and and going to the other side, uh, Chevron. Chevron has proven this year, and Buffett's been an energy fan. He's admitted he was wrong on the timing, but he loves energy. Chevron has been the better financial energy play this year in terms of the quality of the balance sheet, resiliency, um, you know, not having to cut its dividend, things like that. Whereas you know, ExxonMobil was removed from the Dow because of those reasons. Um, so Buffett has two energy plays now, and it's really interesting kind of the different ways he plays them. He's got Chevron, which he has a $4 billion common stock position in. Then he has Occidental Petroleum, which he only owns as preferred shares. Um, so he's not risking his principal as much there. It's interesting he has those two kind of energy plays. Occidental is the bigger investment. I think it's about $10 billion. Um, but it, it's a lot of people weren't happy with that. But I'm. it's what I expect from Buffett. I, I want to see him put money into these kind of stocks when he's establishing a big position to just grow. Slowly, I, f- I feel like you're right. I mean, I feel like I mean, on the one hand, I understand um, folks maybe being a little bit disappointed, and, and perhaps that's that's due to some of the investments that they've made recently. Um, smaller international fintech plays like Stone Co. or investing in talking about data, investing in Snowflake. Um, I mean that that really isn't. I mean that's really not his circle, so to speak, right? I mean that's that's. I, I certainly see Verizon and Chevron things like that more more within his, his circle of competences, more within like his philosophy, so to speak. Um, so yeah, I mean I understand the disappointment. By the same token, I mean I'm definitely not surprised at those purchases. Now there were six stocks that Berkshire Hathaway bought more of, and it it certainly seems at least with one of these um, companies that there is a, a little bit of a theme going there with with the Verizon investment. But talk a little bit about those six, uh, six stocks that Berkshire bought more of. Well, I don't think you're talking about Kroger. I think you're talking about T-Mobile. That's correct. I'm talking about T-Mobile. <laughs> exactly. Um, B- Buffett started to establish a position in T-Mobile last year, last quarter. 
So maybe this was some kind of foreshadowing that he was going to jump into Verizon too. But he seems to kind of believe in the in in telecoms as kind of the way to play 5G. Is kind of what I'm seeing here. Um, so he added to a T-Mobile stake. He established a new Verizon stake. Um, interestingly, he sold AT&T a few years back, but I wouldn't be shocked if he bought some of that. Um, so there was T-Mobile. He added to three of the company's healthcare plays, AbbVie, Merck, and Bristol-Myers, uh, collectively a little over a billion dollars between the three. So he, he established those positions in the third quarter. It looks like he added to them, which Buffett does. He builds positions. He doesn't necessarily buy... I mean, if you want to buy a billion dollars of a stock, you can't really do it with a. It's not like opening my brokerage account and hitting a buy button. That has to be done yeah. in, in. That usually like, has to be done in increments. I'd like to submit a limit order, please. <laughs> right, like that just can't be done by opening your TD Ameritrade account and hitting buy. No. Um, so there were those. So that's four of them. Uh, I mentioned Kroger. He's been building a position in Kroger for some time. Um, remember grocery stores had kind of gone out of favor in a while. Everyone thought Amazon was going to take over the business. Yeah. You know, I remember when Amazon made that acquisition of Whole Foods and back then, I mean, we saw every grocer on the day of that deal's announcement, every grocery store uh, stock just tanked. And it it, it was just, it, it was, I don't know, it just seemed like it was such a knee jerk reaction because I mean, People forget about that grocery opportunity, how big it is. I mean, Walmart, I think Walmart technically is the country's largest grocer. Uh, Kroger right there behind them. Obviously, Kroger owns Harris Teeter, among other brands. Maybe just a big opportunity, right? I mean, grocery, people got to eat. And, and I mean, that's just, again, maybe not the most exciting business in the world, um, but pretty steady. Yeah. It, it One thing during the pandemic, grocery stores have gotten really good at the omni-channel thing which is something else I think Buffett might be seeing here. Everyone thought that that was going to be Amazon's secret sauce when it bought Whole Foods, that that was going to be the the grocery store you could do curbside or delivery or things like that. But now I can get delivery from Publix if I want to. I can get delivery from Kroger if I want to. Um, there's a chain in the Southeast called Lowe's Foods that's amazing, um, and they're doing curbside pickups, and it's, and it's so efficient and easy. So... Grocery stores have really taken away Amazon's key advantage there in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, if if I could just drive up and someone puts the groceries in my trunk, what's the difference between that and ordering them for next day delivery on Amazon? It's, it's almost yeah. more convenient. I mean, it's, um, so and you're seeing a lot of a lot of operations that are really pulling it off um, on a national scale. I mean, Target's the one that comes to mind immediately. That's just done such a terrific job with with that. Right, and Kroger was so beaten down when Buffett first started getting into it, so I don't really blame him for that's a great value investment in my mind. Uh, the sixth one on the list was RH, which is Restoration Hardware, um, but that was a tiny addition. Um, it was um, uh, even even by normal hedge fund standards, it was a tiny addition, uh, about a million, eleven million dollars, which for Berkshire is like you know me or you dropping a dime on the ground. <laughs> Or, or, nice, or maybe, nice a have, maybe a quarter. Maybe a quarter. What about these stocks that uh, that they reduced their positions in? I mean, it was kind of, kind of, I don't know. Honestly, it was a little bit surprised at some of these names. Anything stand out to you? Well, the big one was Apple, and I'm not really surprised about that. No, Apple, I, that actually did kind of surprise me a little bit. Well, Apple has grown to the point in Berkshire's portfolio where it's like a quarter of the company's market cap. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Pretty soon, they're going to have to change their names to Berkshire <laughs> Apple Holdings or, or something like that. Um, oh, they sold a, a little over $7 billion worth of Apple stock, 
which is, I mean, that's a pretty big, big chunk, but it's still the company's biggest stock position by far. It seems like a matter of kind of like, like diversifying and, you know, you know, rebalancing kind of like you would do in your 401k. Yeah. Portfolio management. That's, that's, that's what it sounds like. Yeah. Buffett, I mean, regardless of how, what you think of the Apple investment, Buffett is not a guy to let, you know, 50% of his assets be in one thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, even if that's Apple. So I, I don't, I'm not that big of a fan of that move, but I, I get it. Um, the other ones, the financial ones weren't a surprise. He's pretty much been selling every bank except Wells Fargo for a while. Um, or not, not except Wells Fargo, except for Bank of America. He yeah. sold Wells Fargo. That's where I got tongue twisted there. <laughs> uh, he sold over two, almost $3 billion more of his Wells Fargo stake. Now uh, Berkshire went from owning a little over a little under 10% of Wells Fargo to about to less than 1% of the of the bank. Wow. Over the past few quarters. He's been paring that one down for some time now. Um, the big one that really stood out to me as a surprise was General Motors. That he sold not a bunch of it. They still Berkshire still owns a good deal of General Motors stock. But they sold a good chunk of it. Now it's the, um I mean Berkshire owns about 5% of GM. I mean, you feel like he's thumbing his nose at you, Matt. I mean, I, I mean, I remember reading your your takes on GM recently. That you're, Maybe. And, that you're and under Wells the Fargo radar EV pick, right? <laughs> and, and, and Wells Fargo. He, yeah, he, he's just going against me on all on all sides I of mean, the business. What's the What's the deal with that? <laughs> but, I mean, I don't know why he decided to sell some GM. I'd kind of like to know the answer to that question because I I honestly can't figure it out. Um, huh. What about I, I, Liberty? What's this Liberty Latin America? I see you reduced a uh, stake in Liberty Latin America. Liberty Media. Um, you know what Liberty Media is? They, oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So they have a very complicated share structure. If you look I, at any I of Berkshire's recall. portfolio stuff, yeah, there's like two different classes of Liberty Sirius XM because they're kind of, they have a majority stake in Sirius. There's some Liberty Media. There's some Liberty Global. There's some Liberty Latin America. So on occasion, Buffett will just kind of shuffle a little bit of that around. That's a, that was a tiny sell, uh, $1.7 million, which is like us dropping a penny on the ground to, to Berkshire. <laughs> yeah. So it's a very, very small – I don't even want to call it, like, call it a really a sale. But for whatever reason, they decided they needed that $1 million of cash to do something else with. I don't look too much into it. Berkshire still is – between all the classes of the Liberty stocks, Berkshire still is a pretty big position. There you go. And then he exited completely, it looks like, five positions here. Anything stand out to you there? Well, the ones that didn't surprise me were the banks. Like I said, he's been selling pretty much every bank but Bank of America. He's calling that the winner. Uh, he sold PNC Financial, J.P. Morgan Chase, and M&T Bank completely, um, which kind of surprised me a little bit. Um, the big surprise here was that he sold Barrick Gold, which he just bought. Remember, we, he made the the – Investment in the gold miner about a quarter, I think, the just the quarter before. Yeah, I was going to say that didn't. I mean, I feel like that that just happened. It sounds like it, it didn't did. didn't last long. And Buffett's normally not one to make a short term trade. Um, so that just happened. He sold all twelve million shares that they bought. Um, maybe he's 200. going. Maybe he's going Bitcoin now. Oh, I, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I. I would bet money that he's not going Bitcoin. Oh, I'm but just I've been <laughs> I've been wrong about things before. You never know with some, of, especially with his his um, you know, his lieutenants Ted and Todd in in charge of a lot of it. You know, yeah, they're it's not out of the realm of possibilities. No. Buffett and Munger have both said that they don't like Bitcoin. Right. That has nothing to do with what his stock pickers, who have you know complete control over billions of dollars, want to do. 
So, I mean, it's not outside the realm of possibilities. Not at all. Um, I'll, I'll keep my Bitcoin um, opinions, you know, zipped up for <laughs> for the moment. Okay. Um, just because I don't want to get down that rabbit hole today. Not uh, at all. And the fifth one that he sold was Pfizer, which actually kind of surprised me a little bit. Um, he added this to his other three healthcare plays. You know, I mentioned Bristol Myers, AbbVie, um, but sold out of Pfizer completely. Um, I don't know. What do you What do you think about that? Do you think it was a vaccine play or or? I you know I kind of wonder if maybe that isn't it. If he's thinking like so much of the, I mean, obviously the market being very forward looking. I mean, I think a lot of. Uh, what the market has been looking forward with in regard to Pfizer has probably really come to fruition and, and been pulled forward. So maybe he's looking at that and thinking, you know what, I've, I've got other opportunities. And, and maybe perhaps, you know, part of that was that Verizon idea, a little bit more of a slow and steady, reliable dividend um, play there with Verizon. I mean, that was obviously a massive investment he made that um, it may not seem very exciting, but it is kind of like, I tell you, those operators, whether it's utilities or, 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 or you know, the mobile operators, I mean, they are very much, uh, they have that, they have that sort of annuity, uh, quality to them where, where, you know, they're, they're things that people need. And so they more or less are going to keep running and, and they are able to offer up those, those dividends that, um, are, it's not like the sun coming up, but they're pretty reliable, Matt. Yeah, I mean Buffett likes reliable dividends. He, <laughs> I mean, he, he Berkshire makes bil- uh, billions in dividend income each year off of that portfolio, um, and that's money that Berkshire can reinvest. So, yeah, that's a good point. That's a very good point. Um, well, let's pivot over to Paycom here for a minute, Matt. I know this isn't a company we talk a whole heck of a lot about on the show. Uh, but we're going to change that because we're talking about Paycom today, and I have a feeling that we will continue to talk about it more and more as time goes on. Because the thing that stands out to me first and foremost, this is a quality business. Um, it, it looked like their earnings report, which came uh, earlier uh, in in uh, last week, we were off obviously last Monday, so we weren't able to cover it on that show, but we wanted to cover it on this show. Um, and and Pay Paycom Software, for those who don't know, they sell uh, cloud based HR software. Ultimately geared towards helping companies hire and manage and train and pay their employees. Um, I I will say it is the pay part that really is the gist of their business today. Most of their business is based on the payroll service. Um, So they they do uh, have a a suite of offerings. They compete a little bit more with companies like Workday, for example. But but it does really seem like uh, payroll for now is the company's bread and butter. Um, interesting business from a number of different perspectives. I mean, they've got founder and CEO Chad Richeson, who still owns just under fifteen percent of the business. So that that founder leader. I mean, that there are some some there's some good alignment there. Uh, and, and shareholders can take solace in that. I think in regard to the results, I mean, fourth quarter revenue, $221 million, That was up just a, a bit over 14% from a year ago. Uh, it looks like uh, earnings per, uh, per share looks like $0.84 cents per diluted share versus $0.86 cents a year ago. So they've, they've been able to kind of tread water here in, in what's been, I mean, a difficult situation, obviously, a tricky a tricky situation for a lot of businesses. But really, I think that is that is probably played into Paycom's favor, given the, the tech-driven nature of the business and the cloud um, offering that they provide. Uh, if you look at the actual business itself, the forecast they're calling for here in the coming year, they're calling for 
11.5% revenue growth for the current quarter and growth for the full year of about 20%. Now, it's worth noting, I mean, you look at this business historically over the last five years, they've grown revenue at a compounded annual rate of about 30% over the last five years there. So, so I mean, growth is slowing down. Now, that's to be expected. I mean, this is going to be a $1 billion revenue business here in 2021. They're going to cross that billion-dollar revenue mark. Big deal for them, for sure. Uh, it, growth is slowing down, and that's something to, to at least keep an eye on. Now, I noted the the stock is down about 11% since the release. And, and and maybe that is, maybe there is some concern there with the growth slowing down a little bit, because it's it's not a cheap stock, as, as you know, at least by conventional by conventional uh, valuation methods. I mean, maybe maybe price to sales is the more appropriate way to look at any, anything now. I mean, I'm only uh, saying that half kidding. But if you look at at Paycom, the business is profitable, it's cash flow positive, uh, still trading at something like 165 times free cash flow and earnings. So this is clearly a business where a lot of growth has been baked into that share price, and maybe yeah, maybe that growth is is slowing down a little bit, and that's concerning the market uh, when you look at the competition in the space, something like an ADP, for example, $72 billion market cap, makes 14 times the revenue of, of a Paycom, ton of cash flow. Uh, I mean, Paycom right now, the opportunity there, they quote themselves having about a 5% market share on the call. So, there is plenty of opportunity for them to continue serving that small to medium-sized business demographic uh, on which they focus. Uh, but uh, you know, price does matter, and maybe the market is looking at that growth uh, here in the near term and kind of wondering uh, if it, if it's uh, if the headwinds that they've been facing won't, won't last a little bit longer. But I think all in all, a positive quarter, full year total client count expanded to almost thirty one thousand. Uh, that was up 17% from the, the prior year end, so so that growth was encouraging to see. Uh, clearly, they're doing something right. Uh, they're providing a service that customers like because the customers keep uh, re-upping and, and you know new customers keep signing up. So, all in all, a positive quarter, but maybe a little bit of a valuation concern there, and, and that's uh, understandable. Yeah, the one thing I saw that maybe is concerning to investors, their revenue retention rate was 93%. Which um, we talk about a lot of these, you know, newer tech companies with subscription-based services having revenue retention in like the 120, 130 percent range, um, and there's a good reason for it. A lot of Paycom's customers went bank. I mean, just they went bankrupt during the pandemic. They focus on businesses. A lot of businesses didn't make it, unfortunately. So that's 93 percent of the revenue they came into this, the year with is still still coming. So they've added new clients, but. It's it, you know the pandemic had, might have had a little bigger of an impact on the business than than investors thought, and that could be concerning people as well. Yeah, yeah, very understandable, very understandable. Um, hey, listen, I mean, twenty twenty was a difficult year for everyone. Um, some more than others. Hopefully, we'll see twenty twenty one here. Things will start to turn around a little bit. Uh, my suspicion is uh, this is a bit more of a near term uh, concern with Paycom, not something so business fundamental um rather than just just a bigger picture uh economic driven type type of situation for the business but i mean i think it's one that uh has a pretty well established tra- track record of of uh, impressive growth and and again you you love to see a founder leader uh with those types of uh, ownership stakes still in the business um speaking of stocks Individual <laughs> stocks, Matt. Uh, 
listen, I, I feel like I'd be doing you a disservice if I didn't at least mention the fact that your financial stock for 2021, the stock that you highlighted on this very show at the beginning of the year, and loyal listeners will recall that stock is Wells Fargo. Well, I think Wells Fargo's giving you the old Larry David, Matt, making you feel pretty, pretty, pretty good with shares up 25% year-to-date. So congratulations on that. Um, recently, we got an update on Wells Fargo in regard to regulators, and I'm going to let you take it from here. Uh, what exactly is going on with Wells Fargo, and why should investors be encouraged? Well, yeah, so they're up 25% year-to-date. That's compared to 11% for the overall financial sector. Um, Bank of America, JP Morgan, and Citigroup are all below that that level. Um, so they have been outperforming, and for some good reasons. I'll get to that update in one second. Um, for one, they have the most to gain from reopening because they're most mostly a consumer bank. Unlike Bank of America, JP Morgan, Chase, and Citigroup all have big investment banking divisions that have actually held up well during the pandemic. Um, as things start to normalize, things like trading revenue and stuff like that could really start to taper off. Wells Fargo doesn't care about that. They're a consumer bank, so they care about the health of the consumer, which is why they stand to benefit really a lot from, from reopening. Um, they also stand to benefit the most from interest rates normalizing. Um, since the beginning of the year, you mentioned Wells Fargo is up by 25%. The 10-year Treasury yield is up by 44% year-to-date. It's gone from below 1% to 1.34% as I write this. That The 10 years is usually a really good benchmark of just overall interest rate activity. So Wells Fargo makes its money primarily from consumer banking, which means loaning money out and collecting interest. The higher interest goes, the more that the bank benefits. Um, and number three, as you mentioned, the Fed, uh, we got an update that the Federal Reserve has approved Wells Fargo's kind of plan to make things right in terms of its governance after years of <laughs> years of misbehavior and getting it wrong. So the Fed has finally approved its plan. If you're not familiar, Wells Fargo got slapped with a Federal Reserve penalty in early 2018. Never happened before to a bank. Limited the it, it essentially said Wells Fargo cannot grow beyond the size that it was at the end of 2017. So Wells Fargo missed out on 2018, 2019 and 2020 which 2018 and 2019 were two of the best years for growth in the banking business. The economy was firing on all cylinders. The tax cuts were just passed. So it, Wells Fargo missed out on all that. Now it looks like that they're taking the first steps to get that asset cap lifted. So if Wells Fargo is allowed to grow again, that's a game changer in the investing thesis. So it's not there yet, but this is definitely an important first step that regulators have signed on and said, okay, your your governance plan, you're doing it right this time. Um, finally, you know they brought out and brought in an outside CEO. They overhauled the board. They overhauled the sales practices, things like that. So the Federal Reserve is finally saying, okay, you're on the right track. Um, so that's definitely a positive. So I think Wells Fargo still has a ways to go from here. Um, I'm I'm holding holding on to the stock, um, but I'm definitely happy with. That I made, I made the call, and hopefully a, a few of the few of our listeners bought Wells Fargo as well, and are are equally happy with me. Not going to throw something at me if they see me in public. <laughs> hopefully, indeed. Hopefully, indeed. Well, yeah, that is good news. Sounds like they are making progress. Definitely um, headed in the right direction, and that'll be something we will we will continue to keep up with um, all year long for for obvious reasons. Uh, but but so far so good. So congratulations on that, Matt. 
Um, and, and I know our listeners appreciate it too. Uh, speaking of listeners, uh, we have a question from a listener this week, Matt, a question from Z and she's all the way in Malaysia. All right. So listen, we're, we're, we're reaching all over, all over <laughs> places. I mean, we got, we're, we're just, we're global here at industry focus and love getting this question from Z and, um, I've, I've I've consolidated a little bit, but it's a good question, and it's one I feel like we we could could talk about for a few minutes uh, this week because it, it is something that pertains really to younger investors. and And so Z asks uh, for younger investors like myself, how can we grow our portfolio when we're trading with smaller amounts of capital? Take the average millennials are earning. So you've got a fixed monthly income of say three to seven thousand dollars. But considering student loan, rent, daily expenses, it's kind of funny how people say we have a higher risk tolerance if we're younger in age, when in fact, that's really all we have. And if we invest in the wrong business, sometimes it's kind of a big deal. So what if we want to grow our portfolio further or faster? Is there a proper way to do so? What if we were to take more risks? What kind of risks would be easier or safer to manage? Uh, and and Matt, this really is something that gets. I think it gets to really something we we talk about a lot with younger investors. Often is is this it's it's this idea of getting rich quick, right? And and, and it's an understandable it's an understandable desire. Yet uh, you and I know, and, and and it's something we we focus on trying to teach our members and listeners and subscribers every day. It really it's it's just a lot easier said than done. It's really not the best way to go about things. Um, let's let's talk about it about this for a minute though, because I, I I think she makes a really good point. Actually, we do talk about often younger investors should feel like they can take on more risk. And the main reason we say that is because you have more time in front of you. You've got more time to work and make money and make up for potential losses. But at the time, in, in that immediate uh, point in time, I mean, yeah, your resources are limited. So picking a loser is going to be something that could have a more dramatic impact on your finances earlier on in life. So, how do we square that up for her? I mean, in regard to the risk versus wanting to be able to get that portfolio to grow a little bit further, a little bit faster. Well, for one thing, I would push back a little bit in that you shouldn't have money in the stock market you can't afford to lose. So, regardless of your risk tolerance, you shouldn't have money in the stock market that you not just can't afford to lose, but that you're going to need in the next few years. So, as a younger investor, you have that advantage that you won't need the money for a while. It's easier to make up losses if you're a newer newer investor. Um, for example, when you get to be my age or Jason's age and your portfolio gets cut in half, it can be devastating. At least a lot more so than when we were 25. Yeah. I'm not yeah. 25 anymore. I don't think Jason is either. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> um, so, it, it's, it, it is all about time. But having said that, there's a real kind of blurred line these days between risk and speculation, um, especially in the kind of gamified investing world that we've seen in 2020, where people are, you know, the GameStops, the AMCs, the all, all this, the crazy stuff, um, you know, all the SPAC mergers and all this kind of stuff. It's just kind of become a game to a lot of people. And you have to really manage risk. If you're a younger investor starting out with a, a relatively small portfolio, chasing things that are going to double in a year or two, 
or going after the next big thing or even putting one or two stocks in your portfolio because you think they are the way to go is not the right way to do it. First, establish a base. I mean, I always tell people that the lowest risk, highest reward thing you can do is to start a base of just high quality ETFs in your portfolio. Um, you know, um, an S&P 500 ETF will historically return, you know, 10% a year over the long run, but it's not going to make you broke. It, if you're in your 20s, 10% compounded over a lifetime is a really good return, a really good return. I mean, you you don't need to save that much in your account if you're investing in something like that to end up a millionaire, but you're not going to go broke doing that. Once you've established a base, that's when you branch out into individual stocks and things like that. But even then, it's re- it's important to remember that it's not a game. This is actual money that you're putting up. This is your the money that you're going to need to send your kids to college or to fund your retirement or to, in Jason's case, buy a horse or, or, <laughs> or whatever you want to do. But but Jason wouldn't have bought the horse if he had been irresponsible with his money. <laughs> no, I reckon not. I reckon so, not. We, I didn't put the horse <laughs> on a credit card. I paid cash. Right. You didn't sell your GameStop stock to buy it. I mean, no, it was, I did not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing it came from wise financial planning. I'd like to so, think so. It, the point is, establish a base. Don't take unnecessary risks. Know what you're getting into. Don't speculate. That's the wrong word. You want to invest, you could take on risk. Apple stock is a risk. Buying GameStop because it was on a Reddit board is speculating. Yeah, that's a there's really a, good point. There. There's a big difference. and I mean, I'd say read up on the difference between investing and speculating and really learn about risk tolerance is probably, it's probably the best thing you can do as a younger investor. And now I'll shut up about it. Well, no, I think you made a lot of really good points there. And I like your idea of starting out with that firm base, right? And I, as you were talking, I started envisioning this tree. And this tree was growing. And you started with this base of maybe it's something just as simple as saying, well, the first 5000 or the first $10,000 that I save – I'm going to be just investing that methodically into this S&P index fund, this S&P 500 index fund, because that's something you're right. I mean, no, it's not going to beat the market. It's going to match the market because you're investing in the market, right? And you're getting immediate diversification because you're investing in that in that ETF that covers those 500 different companies. And so then as you get that base and as that tree starts to grow, you can branch out and start investing into other types of opportunities like individual companies, for example, uh, other ETFs, if you like. Um, one of the, one of the things that she noted in her question, in, in different ideas as far as investing, um, choices from investing in long-term good businesses and just sitting and waiting, or investing in ETFs and mutual funds, or investing in speculating SPACs. Lots of different opportunities you can invest in out there, but I think that really she keyed in on something with that very first choice and investing in long-term good businesses and sitting and waiting. And that ultimately is what it really all comes back to is you made a good point in in referencing this current climate as one of of this. It feels gamified. It feels like a lot of people view this as a game right now. And, And there are a lot of people out there in the media that um, I, I think are contributing to that narrative, and we certainly don't want to be, um, you know, ones who do that. 
but but the fact of the matter, it, it it does feel like it's taken on that feeling of of a gamification, um, and and that's not how it works, right? That's this desire to try to get rich quick, and trying to get rich quick is essentially well, just go buy a lottery ticket, uh, or or uh, you know gamble. And, and then you can you can take the good with the bad there. But if you're going to invest, the, the nature of investing is investing in long-term good businesses and just sitting and waiting. And, and that really ultimately is, is why we do what we do, Z. And when you're young, I, I certainly understand that feeling of wanting to get to the finish line uh, more quickly. Um, investing is a bit of a paradox in that regard, though. And so we would encourage you just to continue to build up that base Allow yourself to branch out as you get older, and first and foremost, as as you mentioned it in your question, investing in in good businesses, and then just sitting and waiting. Continue to diversify that portfolio, and uh, be patient. and And I, I suspect in ten years, even you'll look back and and be glad that you did. So, thank you for the question, and Matt, thank you for all of that great info. Uh, in your opinion there. Uh, before we wrap it up, Matt, we've got uh, some stocks for our listeners to keep an eye on this week. What is your one to watch this week? So I am watching one of my favorite hotel real estate stocks, uh, Ryman Hospitality Properties. Ticker symbol is RHP. They are, as we've we've talked about them on the show before, they're the, the company that owns all five of the big Gaylord hotels in, in the US. They have a few entertainment assets, things like that. Their earnings come out on Friday morning, and I'm really curious to see how it does because their business is terrible right now. I think the the Gaylord by you is still closed. For a hotel to still be closed, that means it's pretty bad. These are hotels that are geared toward group events like conventions, conferences, concerts in their entertainment portfolio. Group events aren't happening and aren't going to be happening for some time. Meanwhile, the stock has shot up. It's more than doubled in the past few months. Um, since the vaccine news came out, Ryman has more than doubled. So I want to see something there to kind of justify the move, whether it's a, you know, a, a good projection for 2021. They're, they, you know, they've rebooked a ton of events for, go, for going forward would be a great reason for the stock to be higher. Um, so I want to see how they're, how they're doing and how they see things going forward. Um, I'm hoping they do give some good news to justify the valuation because I'm a happy shareholder. Speaking of happy shareholders, I'm going to keep an eye on Etsy, and I'm a very happy shareholder of Etsy, but their earnings come out this Thursday um, after the market closes. And uh, you know, and we know the story. It's a two-sided network that brings buyers and sellers together. Really love the nature of the business model, very, very light in that regard. And so we pay attention to the numbers of customers, the numbers of buyers and sellers. We pay attention to that gross merchandise volume number, the dollar figures. Uh, how much merchandise is going through that network. And then I think also really, uh, it's interesting to note the Etsy payments side of the business, becoming another big driver for the business. Uh, They offer Etsy payments as of last quarter now in 45 countries across 21 currencies, processing 92% of their gross merchandise sales in the third quarter. That was up 88% from the previous year. So uh, we'll get some more information regarding Etsy's business coming Thursday. Uh, But Matt, I think that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you, as always, for taking the time to jump on the show. Of course. I will see you next Monday. Next Monday is going to be March already. Can you believe that? I cannot believe it. I cannot believe it. But hey, man, we keep on marching forward. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, folks, remember, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MFIndustryFocus or drop us an email at IndustryFocus at Fool.com. 
As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to Tim Sparks for putting the show together for us. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. We'll be right back.